0: we are not starting with an ideal case where everything is great we are optimized and the scientists are just going to mess it up and and you know and and we're going to make things worse we are in no way optimized we, you know evolution doesn't care about our intelligence it doesn't uh it doesn't optimize for happiness or for or for, for for fairness or for any of the things we value you know evolution optimizes for biomass that's it just different ways of being alive and so this idea that uh, that that being able to change our own structure is somehow scary—it's scary, and it's scary to grow up, and it's scary to realize that we are the adults in the room, so to speak, and the we are—it's now on us to control these things. But that's not because before they were handled by a wise, you know, sort of creator that did things for the best. We've kind of left that story behind. Now we realize that nobody was at the wheel, like literally nobody. And so, and so, if we're scared uh, do we not think we can do better than nobody? I mean, I, I can imagine being scared that we can't do better than some, you know, some supreme intelligence that that's a reasonable fear, but if it's literally nobody controlling this, I think we can do better than, than that. So, so I think that that's what we need to realize is that, is that we are not some sort of optimized, uh, result of, 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 you know, uh, some process that had our, our welfare in mind. That's just not where we came from. So we can, we can definitely, we can definitely do better
1: well thanks for coming back i'm really looking forward to this great thanks for having me back yeah great yeah 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 so so like i said i'm i'm really curious to get into more of the sort of practical therapeutical or therapeutic applications of your work um before we do that though i thought it would be good to maybe revisit briefly just like uh an overview of the work you've been doing with with worms with frogs to sort of giving people the, the sort of nitty <clears throat> gritty of, of, of what you're doing there. I mean, we, we went into it in a lot more detail in the, the first interview. Anyone who's interested can go back and look at the more sort of theoretical underpinnings. But in terms of just, you know, in, in, in very sort of simple, basic terms, could you explain the, the work you've been doing there?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the bottom line is that uh, because c- cells have to work together to form uh, bodies, right, and anatomical structures, there are a whole variety of uh, signaling pathways that serve as a kind of interface that they expose to uh, others, and and so so who are these others? So normally these are other cells. This could also be parasites. It could be uh, various other um, various other creatures in their environment, microbiome, and so on. But in particular, it it's it's helpful to us. So 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 there are many types of hackers. As I said, you could be you could be a parasite. You could be a conspecific and whatever. But uh human engineers can learn to uh, program that interface and so the big question is how reprogrammable is it you know what can you tell what can you make these cells do and so in our in our past work we've tried to develop we focus on one particular interface which is this bioelectrical interface that the cells expose there are others there are biochemical ones biomechanical ones we focus on the bioelectrical ones and um we've done things like uh tell various cells in a tadpole uh, in a developing tadpole um, or a frog embryo that uh, they should be making an eye and then cells that wouldn't otherwise normally be part of the gut instead make an eye and so you get you get tadpoles with an eye on their gut we've done things like uh tell uh regenerating planarian cells that normal planaria should have two heads and then you end up with planaria with two heads they will they will grow two heads we've uh, put in oncogenes into tadpoles that would normally make tumors and then we tell those cells that actually they shouldn't make a tumor they should continue to build whatever it is that they were building normal muscle skin and so on and then despite the fact that they have this really nasty oncogenic mutation they still participate in the in the proper anatomical structures we've done repair of brain defects so we have a model a tadpole model of brain defects where you expose the embryos to nicotine alcohol uh, various other teratogens or in fact mutate certain important neurogenesis genes and then on top of that you go back in and you use the bioelectric interface to, to tell those cells what a correct brain is supposed to look like in terms of shape and size. And then what you see is that it repairs the defects and you get tadpoles with normal um, normal brain structure, normal brain gene expression, normal IQ, you know, they get their learning rates back. Um, yeah. And, and of course the regeneration. So, so we've done things like um, taking taken, uh, animals that normally don't regenerate uh, their various appendages, and we've gotten them to regenerate tails, uh, limbs, um, things like that. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the range.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I guess first of all, I'm I'm just really curious. How do you, how do you communicate with the cells? Like what, when you say you're reprogramming the cell language, what, what is it that you're actually doing there?
0: So, so uh, the important, um, uh, this I'll tell you the conceptual thing, and then I'll just describe what the experiment is. Conceptually, the important thing is that we are not reprogramming single cell behaviors. So mm-hmm. other people do. So people work on converting a cell to a stem cell or converting a stem cell to a particular tissue type. So that, that kind of biology fate, you know, cell fate biology. Is uh, certainly something people do. We we do not do that. So what we look for are the, uh, as, uh, the the highest level signals that we can possibly get. So I don't want to have to be in charge of telling every cell what type of cell it should be. If I'm making an eye or a limb, it's very hard. There's too many of them. It's you know it's kind of a kind of a tough thing. I would rather talk to the whole collective at once, and as, as opposed to the parts, and say. You should be a you should be a limb, or even or, or or even better. What I'd like is to and we did this in the frog is to say just build whatever normally goes here. I'm not even going to tell you what to build. Just whatever normally goes at this location, build that, and mm-hmm. and have them do it. So we so we are looking for the highest level interface. Now, how do you how do you communicate with those with that? how do you activate that that those high level kinds of commands? So years ago, we I thought about this and I asked myself, um, in order to communicate with that collective. We have to really understand what is the normal set of signals that are used to merge these individual cells into some sort of higher level structure that makes decisions about shape and form and so on. And well, what could that be? Well, there's one great example of a kind of uh, mechanism that serves as a sort of cognitive glue that binds individual cells together into a higher collective that has goals, can be communicated with, has memories that can be altered by experience and so on, that being the brain, of course. And so you ask, okay, well, how does this work in the brain? Well, the brain is a massive electrical network, right? Through, um, that, there are these uh, electrical processes that allow the cells to communicate in uh, in in a way that that then ends up w- enabling the whole collective to have large scale goals, not single cell goals like I want to be a certain cell type and and keep a metabolic uh, you know parameters, but but large scale like hey we need to be a, a tail of a particular size and shape and so on. So mm-hmm. so we started looking for this bioelectrical communication, and of course we found it because. It's a very ancient thing. Evolutionarily, um, the brain uses the same tricks, but it didn't invent those tricks. Those those kind of mechanisms have been around since the time of bacterial biofilms. So, um, so what we what we are doing is modifying the way that cells communicate with each other electrically. So the way they do that is they have these little uh, proteins called ion channels on their surface. These ion channels are basically gates that let ions, such so as potassium, chloride, sodium, uh, and so on, in and out of the cell. And then there are these electrical connections that the cells have with each other. They're called gap junctions that are basically electrical synapses. They allow uh, ions to go from cell to cell. So what we do is we steal all of the tricks from neuroscientists and basically everything that they, all the techniques that they do work perfectly well outside of the nervous system. So we're talking about drugs that open and close these ion channels. We're talking about mutant ion channels that we can put in. We can take out ion channels genetically. We can put in ion channels. We can use light. So there's a, there's a technique called optogenetics where you use light to open and close these ion channels. So you can do that. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is about figuring out which electrical states you need to reset so that the whole collective ends up in a different pattern. And that's very not obvious because, you're again, you're not dealing with individual cell decisions. You're dealing with collective decisions. So if the collective is going to have a particular pattern that codes for making an eye or making a leg or making something else, you have to figure out which channels need to be open and closed to get you that electrical pattern. It's really, it's really hard. That's, that's the task of uh, inferring interventions. And we use um, comput- computational models. So we, make, uh, we, we basically uh, set up these uh, virtual tissues. We model... Uh, the bioelectrical dynamics in these tissues and then we ask the model okay here's the pattern you have but i don't like that pattern i want a different pattern what channels would i have to open and close to get this new pattern and so those models then tell you well you would have to open this kind of sodium channel and then then you then you can say okay what drug do i have that opens that sodium channel that's one example of of a a technique so or again light you can use light you know you can use light sensitive ion channels and then put down a light mask that uh, has spatial information in it for example
1: so if you're if you're using a drug for example so i mean i guess i'll I'll go back to and make sure i understood so you're you've done some sort of high level analysis of you know a long time ago you realized okay bioelectricity has to be at play here sort of investigating how exactly is that working on a cellular cellular level and then through some process of observation began to identify what were the, the sort of patterns at play use those to create computer models refine the predictions and then get really specific about exactly which channels are you are going to open and close, uh, for how long and, and, and all of that. Right.
0: That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. And so, so you mentioned in our previous episode that it's, it's really important to differentiate between bioelectricity as just like a, a physical force and as a medium for, for communication or for the transfer of, of information. Right. <clears throat> I guess, um, I mean, I don't know if it's possible to explain this in layman's terms, but but if you could, I'd be really interested in in understanding that better. Like, what what is it about the patterned on and off of of electricity that creates information? Like, when when does that occur? Where's the the turning point when it's goes from noise to to signal?
0: Yeah, um, th- there is in keeping with what I was saying before. Uh, there isn't really a. Turning point in the sense of a sharp distinction. This is all gra- this, this is all gradual. And so, uh, the question always is: everything at bottom, if you zoom in far enough, all you see is physics. Always. That's that's what else could you possibly see, right? If you zoom in, that's what you see. So the question for any given system is: yeah, that's physics, but w- what else? What 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 kinds of uh, high level um, dynamics are the? Uh, is this physics implementing, right? So for example. Uh, Let's say, so, so here's an easy analogy to understand. When somebody, um, somebody hands you a, a computerized a computer that plays chess, you know, it's one of these mm-hmm. games that, you know, one of these computer, uh, self-contained computer games that plays chess. So you look at it and there's many levels of analysis that you could apply. So you could, if you're, phys- if you're, if you're sort of physics-minded, you could say, well, this is clearly a physical system. It obeys the laws of electromagnetics. I'm going to zoom in. I'm going to measure all the electric and magnetic fields. I'm gonna figure out what all the paths are of silicon and copper and everything else. And uh, if I'm really, really good, I might be able to make, and, and I have infinite time to make these predictions, I might be able to uh, predict what this thing is gonna do next, right? And maybe if you, if, if you had you know, uh, the infinite amount of time, you probably could, but what you would be missing then is uh, you wouldn't know anything about the chess you would have no idea what it's actually doing you wouldn't know about the, that it's you you would you would miss the fact that you know when when you um when you look at it when you when you look at a a cpu following instructions there are two mm-hmm. very th- this is this is why i mean i always tell my students that um uh, uh, electrical engineering 101 is like the the most magical class you can you can take and from this perspective you build these things with your own hands and it's amazing so you start with physics and and you you just the physics of current and and uh, you know and and e equals ir and that kind of stuff and on the one hand, what you see, what you have there is a physical machine and you can track where the, where the current goes and why specific paths of electricity are what they are, right? And that's there. But what mm-hmm. you've also got is something that follows instructions. There's this whole, there's this whole um, set of concepts that, beca- that come into play. It's taking instructions off the stack. It's putting numbers in memory. It's making decisions if then, uh, you know it's following this algorithm, right? that's 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 an amazing thing but but they're happening simultaneously it's not one or the other if it's if it and so and so it's also interesting in terms of causality because if you're a physicist you might look like, like a reductionist physics physicist you might say there's no such thing as an algorithm there's no such, nobody's following anything there are electrons moving under the laws of physics of course they are what, what else would it be doing but if you are so so the physics leads and the algorithm is just something you paint onto it uh, for, you know, for fun. It's a, it's a view you have of the system, but it does, you know, it doesn't do anything. It's totally epiphenomenal. If you're a coder, mm-hmm. if you're a coder, uh, you've, I'm, I'm, we've, we've, no one's ever met a coder that has this view of the world because you couldn't code that way. You couldn't code that way. If, you know, yeah. to be, a, to be a coder, you have to believe that the algorithm drives something right. Mm-hmm. And this is, this goes back to this, this, uh, this very basic idea that if, if you're a kind of like Laplace's demon, that can sort of predict all the micro scale events. Yeah, you can predict them in terms of being an observer, but you can't actually do anything because all the microstates look the same to you. You wouldn't be able to play games. You wouldn't be able to program anything. You wouldn't be able because because every, to you, every state is as good as any other. You don't believe in macrostates. So, so in a computer, it's, it's the same thing. Yes, it's all physics. Uh, the electricity, It's all the laws of electromagnetics and everything, sure. But there's also this amazing layer on top in which one can fruitfully say that the algorithm is actually controlling what happens next. Because because that's how we write these algorithms. If this, do that, right? It's it's kind of like um, it's the it's the uh, it's the phys- it's the sort of engineering version of, of of having free will, you know, in the yeah. sense that people will say, yeah, but it's all physics. Where's the will? Same thing here, but the algorithm, mm-hmm. in fact, does make decisions. So so in biology, it's exactly the same thing. Uh, the cells are absolutely just following the laws of electrochemistry. Yeah, but the system is such that th- there is a there is a um, uh, a framework uh, uh, that can be uh, um, uh, the, that can be imposed on this that helps us to control the system, and that framework is: let's interpret these phys- these electrical states as computations of a collective intelligence that tries to figure out how many eyes do we have, where's the head, where's the tail. You you can stay blind to that if you want, but then you're gonna have a hell of a time controlling it because you will be down in the micro level of gene expression and so on and and good luck you know getting things to happen or you could try to figure out what that higher level is and much as we do when we reverse engineer you know computer computing devices you might actually be able to crack some of that code as we've been trying to do and figure out that ooh this electrical pattern here that's where it stores how many heads it's supposed to have. Let's see if we can rewrite that. In fact, we can rewrite that. And then, and then guess, guess what? It makes more heads or less heads. So, yeah, so yeah. that's, that's, that's the thing. It's the, it's the fact that, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, the, the bioelectrics is a piece of physics, but the machine is a, is an amazing one because it actually exploits that uh, medium, that physical medium of bioelectricity. It exploits that to store information, to, to integrate information across distances to make decisions, uh, and and so evolution, of course, does that. We do it too. We do it uh, for for our computer devices. They're all electrical, and uh, and the brain does it. It's exactly what happens in the brain, right? And ne- neuroscientists are used to this. They're used to looking at multiple levels. So there are some folks that work at neuroscience at the level of single channels. Yeah, and they just sort of track how the protein conformation changes and, and ions move in and out. And then somebody else will 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 look at um, uh, cell networks and how. Electrical signals through a network and process, for example, uh, edge detection in the retina, you know, how does your retina Mm -hmm. recognize that there's a straight line or movement or or, or somebody's face or something. And then there are people who go even higher than that. And they say, and they, and they will analyze how all of that ends up creating uh, behaviors, specific behaviors, and then all the way up through, you know, psychiatry, where you're sort of talking about these very, very high level motivational kinds of questions. So mm-hmm. so that's what's happening here. The, the evolution is just exploiting this physical medium because it's super convenient. It has some nice properties. The evolution exploits it to enable the collective to, 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 to um, implement the anatomical homeostasis.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess when we're talking about a, a computer, somehow it's, it's easier for me to understand how electrical signals send information because it seems obviously to be the language of computing. But when we're talking about cells, I guess I just, I have so ingrained in me that there's a a difference between, uh, you know, electronic components and living bodies that it's, it's, I guess the the question keeps coming back to me of like, what is it in the body that's interpreting that information? So there's electricity happening, it's sending information, but what is it that interprets that information and responds to it and says, okay, two eyes here nose here. Yeah. How how does that happen?
0: Right. So, so let's think, um, I mean, let me, let, me, uh, let me back up just for a second and, and, and be clear. I, I am certainly not saying that the computing devices of today, which have to, which the, the vast majority of them that we're used to, you know, your laptop and things like this, they were coded by a human. They process one instruction at a time. The, all those that i'm not claiming biology is anything like that at all that's all and that's a lot of people get all, all upset when 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 these computer analogies because but that's not what we're saying computation in general is a much wider wider field and has lots of application in, in biology um mm-hmm. for the interpretations let's let's go back to uh let's 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 just go go back to thinking about the nervous system so in the nervous system and in your brain uh if i if i uh if, if, if I have a subject that walks across, uh, walks across the floor in a maze, let's say it's a rat, what we can do is we can, we can, look, in the, uh, we can look in the rat's brain and we can look at, there's a certain set of electrical uh, dynamics in there. And neuroscientists try to do this thing called neural decoding, where they try to interpret those dynamics. Now, who, now, now neuroscientists can try to interpret them. What hmm. normally interprets them? Well, the rat normally interprets them, meaning that there's an electrical network that's, that processes information, including past memories, and it uh, sends outputs. Where do those outputs go? Well, in the case of physical be- um, three-dimensional behavior, they go to the muscles. So they control the muscle cells, and now, and now the rat walks. So now who, who interprets them? Well, there's actually multiple inter- in, interpreters in there. The human watching is interpreting, and also the rat's, the rat's own body is interpreting it. So now in the, in the, uh, during, uh, the, for example, embryogenesis, it's the exact same thing. Uh, Except that instead of the outputs don't go to the muscles, they go to every cell. So so the electrical signals that go to these cells tell the cells to divide, to turn certain genes on and off, to move, to die, to uh, uh, turn into various other cell types. So all of those instructions, so there's an electrical network, it propagates various computations and the outputs of those networks networks, um, end up being a bunch of uh, signals to various cells. That allows them to navigate space. There's the space of all possible configurations. So, so hey, pull the eyes further apart, pull the jaws out if you're becoming a frog from a tadpole, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's exactly the same. The interpreter uh, is the cells themselves. It just like just like it is in in behavior.
1: Yeah. So it's not it's not mediated through neurology necessarily. It's it's the the yeah. cellular intelligence.
0: C- c- correct okay. correct and 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 that only because a lot all of this stuff kicks in from the earliest parts of development long before there are any neurons this is yeah. you know yeah. n- neurons are a very specialized type of bioelectrics that appeared uh, at some point in evolution but but uh, this was being used long before that
1: mm-hmm. okay okay so yeah i mean you've done stuff like the, the two-headed worms the planaria um even like the the head of of one species of frog on a uh another species right worms
0: this was this was for worms we've done oh, tails worms. we've okay. done we've done frog tails so so okay. he, so worm heads from other species frog tails from other species yeah
1: okay okay amputated a frog leg had that regenerate stuff that is i mean it's incredible and i mean to me the the most immediate thing that stands out is it, it really flies in the face of my understanding at least of of genetics and how those work you know what i i'm I'm not an expert in this field by any means but i've been been told many times in many ways that genetics are a determinant of of so many things everything from personality to physical capabilities to you know all kinds of stuff and what we're seeing here is without changing genetics at all you're you're able to change make, make radical changes uh very quickly um and i i guess i'm just curious like where do you see this heading like do you, I mean, you're starting to do work with, with mammals. Is that, is that correct?
0: Correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I assume you're, you're working your way toward humans.
0: Yeah. So, so a couple of things, uh, so, so we can talk about the, the kind of biomedical application. Do you want to talk about the genetics at all and what the, what the yeah. role of yeah. genetics? Yeah. yeah. Cause that's, yeah. that's a whole other thing. So there, there, there are two ways to do this. If, if you wanted to not upset anyone, what you could <laughs> say is you could, uh, you could, you could tell the story this way. Um, we all know that uh, development, uh, that, that the proteins that are coded for by genomes uh, interact in various ways. There are biomechanical signals, there are biochemical gradients, there are bioelectrical signals. And what all of that physics does is basically turn other genes on and off. And that's it. And so and so, what, so, so one way to look at this work is just to say, Okay. Mm, we found various triggers of uh, cascades, of transcriptional cascades, of genes turning on and off that end up doing interesting things. So, so maybe recapitulate developmental cascades that build a limb in the first place or recapitulate the, the eye-building cascades. Not scary. You're basically just uh, turning on and off different parts of the genome under the control of physical signals. And well, if chemical signals can do it and biomechanical signals can do it, why not bioelectrics? So that's the, that's the kind of non, non-threatening version of this. Uh, of, of this. Um, I, I don't think that's the entire story, uh, as we can imagine. Um, the, na- the next question though is, uh, well, what exactly is the relationship between the genome and the anatomy? And I wanna, I wanna uh, uh, ex- kind of mention some examples that are not particularly bioelectrical, to be, to be clear about what you can expect from, from genomes and what you can't expect from genomes. Um, we know now that we can read genomes that what's in the genome is protein sequences. You cannot directly read from the genome, uh, the size, the shape, uh, the you know symmetry type of a creature. You don't see that in the genome what we see is protein sequences so we know so already and, and and developmental biologists know this all the time although people people forget and they talk about you know genes for this you know for i you know number and so on i mean that's that's not a thing so so we all know that what the genomes produce are the micro level hardware of each cell and then there's this incredibly complex process physiology basically that leads to the anatomy and it turns out that that, that process is uh much uh, much much more um uh interesting and competent than than, than we ever thought so uh for for example uh, here's here's a, here's an old example you can um you can take a, so, so a newt, so think about a newt, newts have kidneys, kidneys have little tubules that lead to the kidney. If you take a cross section of that kidney tubule, you see about, uh, let's say eight or 10 cells that work together in cross section to make that tubule, right? So eight to 10 cells mm-hmm. in the kind of a circle. And then, and then, you know, this way you get your, you got your tubule. One thing you can do with, with, with newts is uh, right at their very early as, as the first of the fertilized egg starts to divide, you can, you can radically increase the number of chromosomes that are in there. So, so, no, so you can make 4N newts, you can make what's called 6N newts or 8N newts. So, so multiply the amount of genomic g- genetic material in there. So, so, so here's some, here's some amazing things. So amazing thing, number one, when you do that, you still get a perfectly normal, normal uh, newt. So that's interesting, uh, wh- wh- you know, extra, extra genetic material, no problem. Uh, you get a normal newt. That's already kind of interesting. The second interesting thing is when you do this, the cells get bigger. When the cells get bigger, you don't get a bigger newt, you get exactly the same size newt, but fewer cells are now working together to make the exact same tubule because they're bigger. So that's kind of interesting. That means that uh, a, uh, a particular, uh, a creature that has, ev- that has evolved in, with a genome that in theory if you if you had this kind of genetic determinism uh, look a uh, view viewpoint uh, well the genome is supposed to do this and this and now you get this new but now there are way more genes now the cells are way bigger but yet it still works that's interesting and then the the kicker the is is number the thing number three is that if you make the cell so gigantic only one cell will bend around itself leaving a hole in the middle and still make the exact same tubule. What's what's crazy about that is that this is a completely different molecular mechanism. Instead of cell-to-cell communication to make that tubule, you're now using some sort of cytoskeletal bending to bend a single cell around itself, leaving a hole in the middle and get the same new. So now in the service of this correct anatomical structure, different molecular mechanisms get called up when things go radically different. So what that tells you is, um, uh, what that tells you is that, uh, the, the, what what the what the gene and, and this is the same thing that you learn from from the Xenobots and from many other examples is that the genome does not specify a very particular hardwired solution to a particular problem. What it specifies is a really interesting computational machine that can solve various problems, various environments. Things like making making chimeras. You know why is it that I can take um, cells from a from a frog and cells from an axolotl and make a frog axolotl and they cooperate just fine and you get something. And, uh, you know, good luck telling me if I, uh, you know, for example, um, frog, a lot of uh, axolotls, baby axolotls have legs, tadpoles don't have legs. If I make a frog a will it have legs? You've got the genomes, you've got the axolotl genome, you've got the frog genome. How come you can't tell me if it's going to have legs or not? Right. It's, it's, it's because it's because by looking at the genome, what you're staring at is instructions for the hardware mm-hmm. and the hardware is very important, but we all know that, that knowing about the hardware does not fully explain what's up uh what's going to be happening with the with the software and so what the genome actually does is it produces hardware that under normal conditions reliably gets to a certain point and that lulls us into a sense of it basically um it basically masks the fact that development is so reliable and that you know oh, acorns make oak trees and frog eggs make frogs that um basically kind of masks the the intelligence of that process, because you think, well, it always does the same thing. In fact, it does not always do the same thing. What that, that hardware is such that under normal conditions, it always does the same thing, but it's also able to handle a wide range of other, of other conditions. So from the genetics, what you can expect is the ability to, uh, to reliably produce a default outcome, but also actually to, to be able to handle a wide range of really novel, interesting things. So um, so that's so so you know that's kind of uh, that's kind of the story of, of of what what's what the genome is doing here now. Um, in terms of the biomedical stuff, I have to give a disclo- disclo- uh, disclosure because um, we have a company. So David David Kaplan and I are co-founders of a company called Morphaceuticals Inc. And it's all designed to take the things that we've learned uh, by working together in frog and um, uh, you know in in frog and uh, and, and, Plenary and and so on into uh, into mammals. And so we're starting with mice and then hopefully eventually humans. We're starting with le- uh, limb regeneration. We are gonna work on various other kinds of organ regeneration and so on. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that's the goal. The goal is ultimately to get this into the clinic.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I imagine obviously for like traumatic injury that would have uh, obvious applications, <clears> but <throat> I imagine that it could eventually get even into sort of uh, custom-made bodies, organs, even brains, perhaps, right? Sure, you know, like-
0: sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the early applications will be birth defects, um, okay, and, uh, traumatic injury, uh, cancer, maybe eventually aging and degenerative disease, maybe. Uh, modification? Yeah, for sure. I mean, to be clear, this isn't the only way to do that. So people are already modifying themselves with all sorts of uh, implants and transplants and 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 smart, um, you know, uh, chips and uh, unconventional sense organs and uh, different uh, uh, types of prosthetics and and all kinds of things. So <clears throat> that stuff, that that stuff is happening regardless of the bioelectrics. But the bioelectrics uh, will absolutely make it easier to control the biology. So mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be that much easier to get the shapes that you want, not only for yourself but for synthetic living machines for example for various purposes and and so on
1: uh what's a synthetic living machine
0: well for example a xenobot is an example for example maybe you want um you want something to uh uh, uh crawl around in a uh in a in a hydroponics plant and uh clean out the uh you know clean out the keep the, keep the bacterial countdown by running around and, you know, and, and, and helping the roots grow or, or cleaning out the, the walls of this thing, or, or maybe you want something to, to, to go inside your arteries and, and, and keep the plaque off the walls or something to, um, fix your arthritic knee joints or, or, co- or chase down cancer cells in the gut, something like that, um, or, or explore some, some new environments. So synthetic living machines are basically, um, biobots, um, s- collections of cells, assembled in a particular way that have a particular function that are useful for some you know, for some reason
1: mm-hmm. and you've been experimenting with that with the xenobots sorry
0: correct correct we've shown yeah I mean the early papers so we have three papers on it so far although there's a lot more coming through the pipeline um, the early work is really focused on the native their native capacities like cell skin cells liberated from an, from a frog embryo what do they normally want to do when you take them away from it's a kind of it's a kind of engineering by uh, removing constraints. So by removing uh, the instructions that all the other cells are, are, are giving them, you get to find out what do these cells really want to do. And what they really want to do is not at all what they normally get sort of bullied into doing, which is to be this uh, passive two-dimensional um, layer on the outside of the body, keeping the bacteria out. They make this, uh, they get together and they make this little, little thing called a xenobot, which uh, swims around under its own power. And has all kinds of uh, amazing behaviors. It's just skin. There's no, there's no other cell types in them. There's no, there's no nerve. There's no, yeah. Um, yeah but and and so and so. Uh, right now, we're studying their native properties, and then the next step is going to be to really learn to uh, uh, control um, uh, control their long term structure and function.
1: Mm-hmm. So you sort of de connect them from the neighboring cells, sort of erase the programming, just to see what they do without any programming and then slowly build up from ground zero to try and create sort of different patterns that will induce different sort of functions and behaviors?
0: Yeah, I mean, so so we don't directly erase the programming. What we do is we normally these cells, the thing about the thing about evolution is that it doesn't work on a blank slate. It, it has to, everything the embryo does, is cells getting each other to do various things because cells are of originally independent organisms. They can do, they have all mm-hmm. kinds of competencies. So they, they signal to each other, making each other do all kinds of stuff. So what we do is we take the cells, we take the skin cells away from that environment and say, okay, in this new much, sim, much simplified environment where no one's making you do anything except each other, see what you want to do. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. and and what they want to do their baseline behavior is to be this this new kind of creature uh, that's like this this really interesting um, proto-organism but but ultimately what we will be doing during that time and we've already begun so so josh bongard's lab who's uh, he's our partner on all this stuff they have an artificial intelligence system that um, basically simulates this uh, self-assembly process and it can tell you interesting things like well if you were to sculpt away some of the cells after this thing is formed its motion will change in this way or it will start doing this or it will be better at doing this other thing and so and so ultimately long term we're going to have all kinds of stimuli that you give these cells electrical optical um, uh, haptic and so on to to uh, to cause them to assemble different types of different types of uh, living machines basically
1: and those would be within the body doing Doing work in the body—that's um, or...
0: probably that's probably one of the last things that will come because uh, the regulatory hurdles to doing anything in the body is are, are so incredibly high. I think the early applications will be in industry. Uh, there will be some in the environment. There will be some in the um, in vitro—you know—sculpting organs for transplantation. Uh, anything that's small and you know requires tiny little little uh, interactions, um, and then and then eventually in the body. Yeah, but that you know yeah. that that'll take a while.
1: Yeah. And do you see this work? I mean, you mentioned briefly, uh, you know, damaging brain cells with nicotine or carcinogens of, of some kind, and then sort of getting it back to normal. But do you see potential to, to sort of custom order your brain and have uh, the same way you could say, you know, I want stronger limbs or bigger lungs? Could you say I want, you know, a more intelligent brain or more, I don't know, emotionally balanced brain or, or anything like
0: that? Uh, far down the line, yeah. I mean, ultimately, yeah. you, you can, we, it, that, that's kind of already happened, right? In the sense that you can say, well, we used to be an early hominid. And then one could pose the question, is it possible to crank up the brain function so that this thing would get to the moon eventually? And the answer turns out to be, yeah, it is. And evolution found a path to do that, right? Amazing. Mm -hmm. So, so can we be finding those paths way faster than the kind of the random um, meandering process of evolution? Yeah, I'm sure we can. So, so yeah, that now, now what the, what the limitations, if any of that are, I don't know, you know, the typical human brain has a lot of architecture already built in some of those choices may constrain future choices. So there may be limitations to what you can do with this typical architecture in terms of intelligence. I'm not sure. You know, nobody, nobody knows the answer to that. But, but yeah, I, I, have, I have no doubt that uh, once we really understand how cells make decisions about what they're going to build, we can, make, we can, we can, we can uh, push them to make different decisions and grow different kinds of things. But, but that will also have to be matched by some sort of uh, advances in prediction of you know, no, nobody knows how, no, at this point, nobody knows how to make a more intelligent brain. Like, even if, even if you could make the cells do what you want them to do, do we just need a third hemisphere? Is that enough? And just more real estate? I mean, nobody has a clue, right? So, so yeah, you can make those changes, but you don't, we don't really know yet.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's uh, staggering to just think about the, the potential there in terms of what could be coming.
0: Yeah. yeah, I, th- I th- you know, I think the one the one really important thing to, to keep in mind, because a lot of a lot of folks are, are um, uh, kind of uh, scared of this in the sense that, uh, uh, w- wow, uh, lo- look at all the, you know, how different everything might be. And that's true. But but the thing to remember is, we are not starting with an ideal case, where everything is great, we are optimized. And the scientists are just going to mess it up and, and you know, and, and, and we're going to make things worse. We are in no way optimized. We, you know, evolution doesn't care about our intelligence. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't optimize for happiness or, for, or for, for, for fairness or for any of the things we value. You know, evolution optimizes for biomass. That's it. Just different ways of being alive. And so this idea that, uh, that, that being able to change our own structure is somehow scary it's scary and it's scary to grow up and it's scary to realize that we are the adults in the room so to speak and the we are it's now on us to control these things but that's not because before they were handled by a wise you know sort of creator that did things for the best we've kind of left that story behind now we realize that nobody was at the wheel like literally nobody and so and so if we're scared uh do we not think we can do better than nobody? I mean, I, I can imagine being scared that we can't do better than some, you know, some supreme intelligence. That that's a reasonable fear. But if it's literally nobody controlling this, I think we can do better than than that. So, so I think that that's what we need to realize is that is that we are not some sort of optimized uh, result of 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 you know uh, some process that had our our welfare in mind. That's just not where we came from. So we can we can definitely we can definitely do better.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as we talked about um previously you know it's moving away from uh, i don't know i guess i could say sort of distributed intelligence where there's all all forms of life are sort of contributing in this this evolutionary game and competing against one another it's like all of a sudden if if we take the reins or the steering wheel or whatever metaphor you want to use um that comes with an immense responsibility to figure out a lot of really complex ethical questions in terms of all right. If before the whole game was maximizing biomass and that got us to here, now what is our game and how are we going to do it better? You know, and I think that's
0: oh, for, for sure, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But keep in mind, it didn't just get us to here; it got us to here, but also to the smallpox virus and to various parasites that cause river blindness and to uh, uh, you know degenerative diseases and 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 cancer and all kinds of things we don't actually need to have. Um, yeah it, it it comes with a lot of responsibility, but I, I think it's pretty standard to uh, again if the if the alternative is no one is in charge and things just sort of roll forward as best as they can, I don't know what the other option is i think I think ethically, if you find out that when you, when you find out as, as we did you know in via Darwin and and, and and folks around him, when you find out that actually uh no one is running things to improve or or for anybody's benefit and you find out that you might be able to morally you're you're compelled to like we have to i don't i don't know what the other what the other moral choice is it was it was okay to leave it alone when you thought somebody somebody better was in control but now it's us so we have to yes yes very hard very hard choices to make but doing nothing is not an option
1: yeah i'm sure that will stir up all kinds of emotions in a lot of people um yeah yeah it's uh yeah yeah it feels like a, a turning point in, in evolutionary history and definitely in, in our individual history our cultural history but i think in, in terms of you know arguably the, the planet as well
0: so yeah yeah i think so it's a growing it's a growing up you know it's a grow it's a it's a growing up and realizing that now now uh, you're now now you're in you're you're the only one that can make changes and, uh, and trying to figure out what's the best way, you know, what's the best way to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit, uh, to talk about, you know, if, if, if we're, I've been trying to let this, these ideas really sink in right in terms of everything that's going on in, in my body has a biological component. There's, um, potentially a sort of biological profile that's, let's say, maybe optimal, right? We can define optimal in in all kinds of different ways, depending on on what we want to optimize, obviously. But think about it in terms of like uh, preventative medicine, right? So um, just on like a very basic, you know, non-laboratory setting, like me here now without uh, any any kind of uh, fancy technology, like, is there anything I can do to reset or stabilize or normalize my bioelectrical patterns or is it just is that meaningless when you're talking about on a macro scale does it have to be these really targeted informational patterns or could it be something like? are you familiar with shilajit uh I, I don't know how to pronounce it it's so it's this it's in nepal it's this special i don't know mineral component that people take and they they say it's a sort of uh, a biological stimulant basically like um when, when people's bioelectrical signals have gotten weak from unhealthy living of various kinds, it's like a supplement that people take, or I don't know, there's carbon redox atoms that, that people take in, in different kinds of liquid forms to help with their, their gut with, you know, different, different kinds of issues. And the way these are explained, at least as as far as I can understand it, is that it's, it's working somehow on a, a biological level to sort of stimulate or regenerate faulty bioelectrical patterns. But I have no idea if that's, Like I guess I'm just curious. How do you how do you think of all that on this this very sort of large scale, just kind of take a swig and see what happens type of approach?
0: Yeah, Um, I I am not. I personally am not aware of anything that would, uh, that you could do that would improve, that would overall improve the bioelectrical signaling. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, things like that could have been discovered empirically that somebody just happened to, you know, found out that they, they, they take some sort of herbal extract and it it improves something or other. So I'm sure there are supplements that do good things. I I'm in no way an expert on that. I I know of no, uh, I, I know of no mechanism that would support that um, people use bioelectricity to, uh, Kind of justify all kinds of stuff, maybe correctly, but if so, they're probably guessing. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe there's any any principled way that you could say, okay, based on what we know about bioelectricity, here's what you should be taking. I, I don't, I don't believe there's any way to draw that logically. That's not to say that somebody didn't find some extract somewhere that's actually good for you for various reasons. Maybe that involves bioelectricity. So, so mm-hmm. no, I don't, I don't have anything like that practical to uh, to to suggest. Um, mm-hmm. I think all of the things that impact are, well, okay. I, 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 will have one. I, I tell you what, I have one, one, the one basic thing is that, and this has been, I, we didn't discover this. This is, this has been known for a while is that uh, potassium is, is better for you in, in certain ways than sodium in the following thing in the following uh, uh, way. Um, tumors are often are often quite high in sodium and that's because high sodium levels tend to depolarize cells and it tends to um in general favor very plastic individualized behavior among cells so they they tend to Mm -hmm. you know oncogenes cause cells to depolarize they kind of disconnect from their environment and they from the from the other cells and they tend to they tend to convert um you know uh people have suggested uh, using uh, eating KCL instead of NACL, right? So potassium salt instead of sodium salt. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody wants to do that. KCL tastes terrible. So no, nobody's interested in that. Uh, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not an MD. I'm not giving out any, any uh, uh, dietary advice whatsoever. I don't know, you know, anything about uh, human uh, dietary uh, physiology or anything like that. Uh, but there have been, uh, there have been papers written about, um, you know, raising of your potassium level. Uh, as opposed to consuming large amounts of sodium, that's about that's about as close as 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 I can as I can get. That was pretty much the only thing I can think of, and I, and I don't think it necessarily other than other than eating less, uh, so, you know, sodium salt. I, I'm not sure there's any kind of uh, advice, you know, that that one can uh, that one can derive from that. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. But in in theory, if I if I understand you correctly, there should be a sort of biological corollary or readout we'll say, of, of potentially any kind of disease or even uh, you know, uh, you know, whether it's physical or, or, or psychological, there should be a, a sort of bioelectrical component of that, right?
0: I mean, so, so I'm not going to say every disease, but certainly some kinds of... So for, so for example, we've shown that you can detect tumors early by, mm-hmm. watch, by, by tracking their bioelectrical signature, by watching cells adopt an, an abnormal bioelectrical signature. And so one can easily imagine a diagnostic uh, tool that will, that will track the bioelectrical signature. Um, there may be other disease states that show up this way too. So for example, one mm-hmm. thing that we've, we found is that in a, in a froglet, if you amputate one of the legs, the opposite leg that was never injured in any way shows a bioelectrical signature at the same location where the other leg was cut. So it's entirely possible that bioelectric information about various kinds of injury states is propagated through the, through the body in some way. And that if we learn to read it, we will have some sort of surrogate site diagnostics where I can look at one area and I can tell something about what's happening somewhere else. I don't think that would be crazy at all. I think that that would be totally possible. What kinds of, uh, defect, you know, what kinds of problems, I don't know that you would catch a lot of physiological problems. You, you would probably get some, some sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of anatomical types of things. Um, so, so that's, 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 you know, certainly possible on the, on the diagnostic side, psychological. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't have any, on the one hand, I don't have any reason to think that, uh, that psychological states per se impact the, the, the body bioelectrics. There's no, there's no data on that. However, um, one can think about it this way, which makes it seem at least plausible. If I were to tell you that you can, so so remember that bioelectrics arises from, from the bio, from the, from the resting potential across your cells, right? The cell, the cell membrane. So there's a voltage gradient, let's say minus 50 millivolts or something like this, you know, in that range across every cell. So let's say I were to tell you that, uh, you can voluntary, voluntarily alter the resting potential of 30% of your body cells. You might say, that's crazy. I don't, I can't control the resting potential of my body cells. How would I do that? Well, every time you you move, you you do a voluntary muscle movement, like you lift your, you know, you lift your arm. What are you really doing? You're really depolarizing your muscle cells, right? You're depolarizing a bunch of nerves and then eventually your muscle cells. Mm-hmm. So, um, so in fact, in fact, you do, and when I say you, I mean some sort of high-level psychological, you know, some some sort of high-level cognitive process in your mind, right? that, that mm-hmm. generates what we call, we call free activity, has the ability to control bioelectrics. So at least in theory, and, and in fact, there is such a thing as a readiness potential. So, so if you're going to move and I'm tracking your bioelectrics, I can tell that you're going to move, You know I don't know, a couple hundred milliseconds before you do it. I forget what the, what the actual number is. So, mm-hmm. so I don't think it's crazy at all to think that there would be bioelectric correlates to um, long-term uh, psychological states. But mm-hmm. at this point, we have no evidence whatsoever that uh, that we'll be able to read those out and uh, in that in that way. But but I don't, yeah. I, don't think it's, I don't think it's impossible.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in my line of work, it's uh, it's almost a truism to say trauma stored in the body. You know, and and mm-hmm. I see that every day in terms of you know everything from muscular tension to chronic disease to mm-hmm. you know all kinds of stuff. And there's there's been some pretty large scale population studies. The ACE studies are kind of the the most famous. It's a are you familiar with that? The adverse childhood experiences studies. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, and they, they see all kinds of correlations between yep. uh, you know psychological trauma and then physical disease, uh, mental. Uh, difficulties all kinds of stuff you know and so it seems very clear that the, yeah as as you say this kind of commun- communication is happening all the time and not necessarily just in, in terms of voluntary movement but also in terms of yeah uh, long-term psychological states can have very profound effects yeah. on, on different kinds of body function
0: i um, don't think i don't yeah i i'm not surprised by it uh i don't know we, we don't have any data on what the, what bioelectrics are, are involved in what way bioelectrics might be involved here, but mm-hmm. it's certainly, it's certainly plausible. Um, do you know, um, I, I was, I was really fascinated, you know, you know, the whole story of uh, Albert Mason. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah.
0: Right. So, so this is like super interesting stuff going from, 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 from you know, uh, uh hypnodermatology all the way up. Eventually he, he, he quit and became a therapist. Because because he was trying to work his way you know higher up into the f- kind of fundamental roots of of disease he felt that it was still too even even uh, never mind drugs but even even the uh, the the hypno- hypnotherapy was was operating on too low a level to really uh, you know solve it permanently. So I yeah. thought that was, that was super interesting. I don't know what the roles, I, I should say it's actually funny. Uh, th- there was a guy, there's a guy named Harold Burr who was kind of like, he's one of my um, all-time heroes. He was a guy in, in the thirties and forties who had one of the first good voltmeters, And he ran around measuring all kinds of things with this voltmeter, And then he wrote this book called the fields of life that, basically, I mean, the guy had a crystal ball. It's unbelievable. Most of the things we've discovered in bioelectricity, he already could see that coming. He already said that in his book without having any functional experiments, without having any molecular biology, no genetics, nothing. He saw all this coming. But one of the things that um, he and his, uh, and his colleagues did was they did take measurements of people in in weird mental states. So, for example, they took measurements of people under hypnosis. They took pictures. Uh, they took uh, measurements of um, of people, I believe, of, of some uh, patients with schizophrenia, if I recall correctly. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point that would be worked out. But right now, we don't we don't have any any bioelectric data like that. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I, I mean, is that is that within the, the sort of realm of possibility to, to do those kinds of studies to, I mean, do you have the technology to do a sort of full scale body reading of someone and say, compare, you know, people have suffered PTSD, for example, with, uh, you know, quote unquote, normal population, or
0: we don't, um, we don't have the ability to do full body readings. No, but I'm not sure, but we don't know that you need full body readings. So mm-hmm. for example, uh, we could find out that you could read everything you need from a small patch of skin. I don't know. What the mm-hmm. advantage that we do now have nowadays is is machine learning. So mm-hmm. what I would love to do at some point, if we had the funding for it, is to measure is to just get measurements on a wide variety of of uh, of individuals in different states and uh, and then and then try to try to infer a signature, Basically to, ma- basically to make a classifier that would, that would try to f- find a signal in all those measurements that corresponded to whatever the, the disease states were. Now, I think that we would need a lot of data. That's a lot of measurements of a lot, just because not only because machine learning requires a lot of data, but also I'm sure it would be very messy. I'm sure that individual there would be a lot of individual, uh, you know, individualized uh, signals it's the same problem that the people in neural decoding face, right? You have a bunch of signals and you're trying to ask, okay, is this animal or human looking at a picture of a tree or a bicycle? And you have to guess from looking at the neural. So it would be the same thing. It would be, here's my, here's my electrical pattern. Is this person, a you know, uh, need, need a kidney or do they need a therapy or what, what, you know, whatever do they, What, what do they need? <laughs> um, so I, I, have a feeling that that would pay off. I would like to do that study. Um, I think it would be expensive, and and it would be a it would be a big undertaking. But I, I think it would pay off.
1: Yeah, 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 man. I I would be very interested to see the results of that. I've, I guess I wanted to ask you. I've been just sort of thinking through all of this and 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 trying to to sort of integrate into my understanding of, of what I do currently. And I, I work a lot with, with heat exposure, cold exposure, mm-hmm. fasting, uh, breath work. And it occurred to me that all of these things uh, potentially have fairly significant effects on, on conductivity within the body right? I mean, you're changing the pH, you're changing electrical conductivity, right? And you do that directly through, through breathing. You can do that through diet as well. Uh, heat and cold also have an, an effect on, on electrical conductivity, right? And so, I mean, I've, I've been working for a while to sort of develop, uh, an understanding of, of why this stuff is working because I see it has it can have very profound effects on, uh, everything from, from chronic disease to, <clears throat> really long-standing, difficult uh, psychological dilemmas, you know, and it's, you know, the, the sort of go-to places is, is, is neurology and talking about, you know, sort of reworking neurological patterns, turning on or off different parts of the brain, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's very interesting. And I think, I think fruitful, but it, it seems to me that we could potentially get to a sort of more fundamental level and talk about, you know, maybe there's some fundamental bioelectrical therapy happening there you know, in terms of, you know, what happens when you're, you're doing intense breath work and, you know, exhaling all this, this CO2 over three or four hours, you know, and you're, you're significantly changing your pH for up to 24 hours. I mean, that's, that's been shown. You're going to be changing the general conductivity of your entire body, I assume. And like, that's, that's going to have some effects, you know, and, and as you're saying to, to determine exactly what those effects are and measure them and, and fine tune them, we're a ways away from that, but it's just, yeah. I don't know, I guess I, I just throwing that out there, kind of a shot in the dark and, curious If you have any any thoughts on that,
0: yeah, I I don't I don't have any specifics, but I think it's completely reasonable that uh, something like that ends up being a good uh, programming interface to this whole system. We we don't really know what all the interfaces are, right? So so we know that direct changing of cell voltage works, but. There may be other, as as Albert Mason found, there are other uh, ways to to talk to cells, and uh, it's entirely possible that the things you're talking about are, are a great interface to you know we are we are uh, in this in this whole thing we 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 are hackers in the sense of in the sense of f- trying to find ways that a particular system can be manipulated. Not worried about mm-hmm. what's the right way, quote unquote, because there is no no right way. Nobody nobody designed it. There is no right way. And so there are just different ways of, of controlling it. And, and we don't know what all those ways are. And so I, I find it completely plausible that uh, people over the millennia have tried everything they could try to, to hack the system in different ways. And that includes breathing and various exercises and, and, and of course chemicals and, and from plants and all sorts of things. Uh, I think people have been hacking at this interface for a really long time. I'm sure I'm sure we're just getting started. There's plenty to be discovered. So, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think that's a very rich area of investigation.
1: Yeah. No. And you, I mean, you looked at the, the interface between somatic and, and sort of neural memories. Uh, I, well, I think, I mean, I guess it's just somatic memory in, in the planaria, right? So you can, you can teach the planaria something, divide them, and then that, that memory is stored sort of diffusely in the body, right? It regenerates, and that, that new being has that memory encoded in it somehow
0: yeah so 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 specifically you can train them cut off their brain or cut cut off their head which which you know their brain is gone and then over a week or so they will regenerate a new brain and that information has to get imprinted onto the new brain now where that information is we don't know it might be in the peripheral nervous system it might be everywhere that that actually we don't know yet but mm-hmm. it does get imprinted Onto the new brain in order for the animal to be able to uh, uh, perform the you know behaviorally, so mm-hmm. so yeah it's connected. We we yeah uh, but I don't know I don't know if it's in the neuron neurons or not. I yeah. suspect not, but that's just a, that's just a guess.
1: Yeah yeah and they, I mean they've seen similar sort of phenomena with the slime molds right, which don't have any neurons, where you can you know they put the the slime mold in a maze, the slime mold learns where the salt is, which is you know deadly poison to them, and they they learn to avoid it. You cut that slime mold in in half. Uh, merge it with another cell and that new slime mold remembers where that salt is and avoids it
0: yeah you know? more, so, or more more specifically it it uh, I, I don't I don't think anybody's at least I've not seen anybody show that it spatially remembers where it is in the maze I think that what it remembers is that on so 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 the way the assay works is there's some um, and this is, uh, this is Audrey Dussatur's work. Uh, you basically, you have, you have a face arm that you have the slime mold, then you have a patch of salt and then you have some goodies on the other side. So what they mm-hmm. eventually learn, which they normally don't want to cross the salt, but eventually when they do, they get hungry, they cross it. They find the they find the food. Eventually they learn that, okay, if I tolerate the salt for a little while, I get to have a reward at the end. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the memory that they have. And then if you take that uh, uh, trained uh, slime mold and physically connect it to another slime mold, that's never, Uh, experience that, that new slime mold will take up that information and will then also be willing to cross salt in the hopes that there's food on the other side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's yeah. Clear evidence that there is high level memory being stored in non-neuronal cells. I mean, we typically consider that to be neuronal behavior, right. In terms of, uh, to to learn behavior and, and that gets stored in our, in our brains at least. And so we, I don't know, at least lay people tend to assume that that kind of behavior would have to be neuronal, yeah. but obviously it's, it's not.
0: Eh, yeah. There's been, I mean, people have found memory in plants, in uh single cell uh, creatures. I mean, the, 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 there's all, this is that, 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 the whole area of uh, basal cognition. Um, it's definitely not just about neurons.
1: Yeah, no, no, definitely. But that's, I mean, and to you, that's common knowledge and, and, you know, you, you've been thinking that way for years, but I think for, for most people, uh, Listen, to that. I'd say for a high percentage of people who just heard you say that's probably the first time they've heard that, and it's a, still considered a very sort of new and, and challenging idea.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, no, I, I get it. Um, I think, you know, I think that uh, one way to sort of battle that um, uh, sense of surprise is just to remind ourselves that when we say things like, oh, it's in my brain or my brain did this or I remember that, or, you know, we don't actually know how most of that works. Right. I mean, they're, they're obviously neuroscience has made a lot of progress, but these fundamental things where where, where if you say to someone, uh, you know, uh, such and such an ability is in my brain. And then you say to them, well, it's also in your, you know, in your liver, they would say it can't be in the liver. Well, what do you really know about the brain that makes it plausible that it's in the brain? I mean, we don't really know. We, we're just used to it. That's all. It's not as if we understand how a lot of this stuff works. So the story of, of memory being stored in synapses is cracking in many ways. And synaptic modifications is cracking. Um, Mm -hmm. and just in general, I think people, people take it for granted. So they're used to it, but if you ask them exactly, exactly, what do you think is going on in the brain? That sounds like a plausible story to you that makes it more surprising somewhere else, you quickly find out that we don't have a plausible story about that in the brain either. And then, mm-hmm. and then you get, then you get some some really weird corner cases. Like um, uh, there was this guy uh, Lorber, who uh, he was a he was a, a, a doctor that uh, he worked in the eighties, I guess. Uh, he studied patients with hydrocephaly, right? And so, so basically, preembryonically b- embryonically uh, pressure water, um, you know, fluid pressure builds up in the in the brains in the in the head, squeezes the brain, and mostly you get really just really debilitating uh, uh, loss of, of cognitive capacity. But mm-hmm. there are exceptions, and so there was. Uh, he had this this uh, one guy. He, he wrote a paper called uh, "Is Your Brain Really Necessary," and uh, he had he had exceptions, and so he had patients. If I if I remember correctly, he had one guy that uh, had had less of, of of a third of the uh, of the of the neural matter of a chimpanzee. And uh, because mm-hmm. the rest of his head was filled with fluid, and he was he had normal IQ, and uh, you know, and, and things like that. And so, how how is that possible? So, so this relationship between you know between the brain and its capacity is is very poorly understood. There are many many mysteries. Uh, so we should be, yeah, you know, it, it's okay to be surprised that it's somewhere else, but it shouldn't be because we think that it's figured out in the brain. So
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it's it's interesting to me, sort of. I mean, just,
0: just because it forces
1: us to rethink what is intelligence and not necessarily just in sort of abstract theoretical terms, but how does my body function? How does my brain function? How are those interacting? What are these different levels of intelligence and, and what does it mean to, for example, through breath work or through cold exposure, heat exposure, fasting, whatever it is, you know? how to understand the ways in which that's acting directly on my body's intelligence and sort of working from the ground up rather than the top down.
0: Yeah, no, I agree completely. And I think, uh, I think probably about six months from now, maybe, maybe, maybe a little longer, um, we should have another conversation because by then, one of the things we're starting to look at in our lab is, um, is, is stress. And in particular, mm-hmm. the way stress scales from individual cell level stress to larger systems that are stressed out about larger things And just in general that you right the scale of things that you can be stressed about is a pretty good, uh, indicator of your, of your cognitive level and so on. And, uh, and, and I would not be at all surprised if we found that stress states were some kind of like, uh, dynamical persistent object that, that, uh. Could be could be detected and could be modified by various various techniques, and that served as a kind of somatic memory. I, I, w- I wouldn't be shocked about that. So yeah, yeah, we should you know by then once we once we have once we have more more data on this, uh, we you know we'll 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 talk about it again.
1: Yeah, I would I would love that I would love that. I, I guess I mean how, how much time do you have?
0: Um, I got about ten minutes.
1: Okay, okay. Um, I guess if you wouldn't mind. I guess I'm, I'm really interested in, in sort of taking it the other way as well, in terms of the sort of collective intelligence of, you know, ants or yeah. bees or or human society and the way we see um, similar sort of failures of rationality or uh, cognitive illusions that we typically associate with brain function. We also see them not just on a smaller scale, but also mm. on, on a higher scale. yeah You know, do, could you talk a bit about I don't know, ant colonies or, you know, robot swarms or any, anything you want.
0: Sure. Uh, Well, a couple of things. Uh, The the first thing to remember is that while people say things like, here's a collective intelligence, uh, if there is an, even if there is such a thing, you know, ants and bees and whatnot, and I'm a proper unified intelligence. Well, we are all collective intelligences right you and i are walking bags of cells and so Mm -hmm. so there is no such thing as an intelligence that's some kind of like indivisible diamond you know Mm -hmm. all all intelligence is made of parts those parts are made of other parts and the key question for all of this kind of stuff is how do those parts uh connect together in a way to cause the emergence of a greater collective intelligence that's distinct that well, what does that mean? It has, it has memories, it has goals, it has preferences that are distinct from those of the individual pieces. It operates in a new space. So, so ants operate in a particular space. The colony operates in a different space. Our cells operate in physiological and transcriptional spaces, but the tissue collective operates in morphogenetic space because it makes different shapes, organs, shapes of organs. So mm-hmm. now, now one interesting thing, I think you were, you were alluding this a minute, a minute ago, uh, some of those collective intelligences are really is similar to each other in interesting ways, but in particular in their failure mode. So, so, so there've been some really cool studies showing that ant colonies, not individual ants, but colonies, Fall for some of the same visual illusions that the human uh, perceptual system falls for. So, so typical—I uh, f- I forget the name of these illusions—but you know, typical visual illusions where they draw something and it looks like there's a triangle, but there's no triangle, and things like that. Uh, you can do the—you can do the same thing with ant colonies by laying out f- food m- particles in particular locations, and they fall for the same kind of stuff. They have the same failure mode that, that, that we do, which which is which is super interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's the, there's that kind of thing. Uh, The bottom line to me is that what we lack, and I think this is an existential uh, risk for us as a species, we lack a good science of understanding how collective minds are formed, under what conditions, what their capacities are going to be, and what their goals are going to be. So we make these things all the time, swarm robotics, internet of things, social structures, financial structures. We, we We make these large scale structures. We don't have a clue what that's what what kind of emergent uh, cognition that structure is going to have maybe not mm-hmm. maybe very little maybe quite a bit and it's very hard we, we don't know how to predict it we don't know how to control it if it does occur we don't know uh if we're already part of some of these um, i think the odds are very high that we are and we just don't know about it you know um yeah
1: yeah yeah i mean by definition we, we couldn't know right if we're i mean for example if we're like Neurons. Each in, individual human is a neuron and some greater intelligence, right? The the neurons don't presumably have any consciousness of, you know, the human body as 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 a structure. You know, we yeah. There's no way we would know if we were plugged into the matrix or you, anything
0: you else. yeah. You know, you know, i I'm, it, I think it is. I think it probably is true that we couldn't fathom the entirety of what the higher level was doing i'm sure there's some sort of girdle proof or something that says that the pieces can't know what the what the whole knows i'm I'm sure that's true but i'm not sure that we can't tell anything about it i i have a feeling that it may be possible to collect evidence that would tend to suggest that you are in fact part of a larger system and specifically that that system has certain goals it may, we, we, we may not comprehend those goals. We certainly won't be able to understand the space in which the system works, but we may be able to gain evidence that says that we are, no, that, 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 that we are not in a um, uh, kind of a, either random or ex- extremely uh, sort of dumb environment. And, and of course, there's people that already feel that way, right? So, so some people say we live in a cold, unfeeling universe that doesn't care what you do and everything is just sort of, you know, it is what it is. And there are other people that are completely convinced that there are these mesoscale laws of life that that no in fact in fact uh, life will teach you lessons and, and such right There's some some people take that very seriously and so mm-hmm. the way to you know what, one way to think about this is um imagine a uh, uh uh an artificial neural network right and so so you know it's a bunch of it's a bunch of nodes and they're all and they're connected in various ways and some inputs come in certain things happen and then some outputs and, and when you train that network, what you do is one way to do it is you look at the outputs and you sort of calculate the error, how, how off they are. And then what you're going to do is you're going to take that error and you're going to back propagate it through the system by forcibly con- changing the way some of the connections are made so that next time it would be more likely to give the, give the right answer, right? That's how you train these artificial neural networks. So one uh, sort of weird uh, mental exercise you could do is imagine you are imagine this there's an enormous neural network and it's being trained you know so you're a deep neural network you're like uh, something in at Google and you're this like gigantic neural network and you're being trained to recognize uh, dog faces right and, and tell them apart from everything else or from cat faces or something and so, so what that means is you get, you get, you get images, uh, p- pixels, pixel data in at the input, then there's a bunch of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, propagation. And then at the end you make some outputs and when they're wrong, they sort of back propagate the error and so on. So now imagine y- usually we think about these things from the point of view of the, uh, of the engineer sort of God, like looking down on this whole thing, but imagine, take a different perspective. Imagine you are either a single node or or better yet a, a small collection of nodes somewhere in the middle of this giant network. You're inside there somehow, right? So now what do you see? You see some inputs coming your way. So those are your sensory experiences. You take some actions, those are the outputs that you provide down the line to your neighbors. And then every once in a while, what happens? Every once in a while, the signal comes, comes roaring through and basically smacks you, uh, smacks you around to, to, to change the way that you're going to respond in the future. It forcibly changes some of your structure to correct you in some, in some way. Mm-hmm. If you were, you know, probably, I'm, I'm, this is probably already sounding, you know, sounding to you like uh, the experience that, that some people have, which is that if you, if you were, um, if you're that, that creature, you know, that, that's that subset of that network, you ask yourself, so do I live in a cold, unfeeling universe that doesn't care what I do? That doesn't seem like it. And in fact, if I sort of uh, do a little bit of a correlation analysis on what, under what conditions do I get, uh, do I get, do I get smacked on, on the assumption that forcible correction is maybe an early version of pain. It may be an early version of single cell, single, neur- you know, single cells, which later became single neurons, neurons being forcibly correct, dr- dr- driven to a particular voltage state, as opposed to ch- taking up whatever voltage states they feel like it. Uh, every once in a while, you get, you get punished, right? These, these, cell, these networks um, are being trained. You might get the feeling that, no, in fact, I live in a universe that definitely cares about what I do. And in particular, you know what it really likes? It really likes when I identify uh, uh, ears in, in my input data. I don't know why. I, th- th- this, this world works in mysterious ways. It's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's inscrutable. I don't know what the heck it wants. But I can kind of tell that it really likes it when I get the ears right, and so Mm. right, and so and so you may be able to gather evidence from some sort of mathematical analysis of the world around you. And I don't know what that would look like, but it would be you know some sort of causal analysis that uh, that maybe certain things are more uh, happen more frequently than they would by chance or something. I'm I'm not sure, but but I'm just I'm just not willing to say that it's impossible. I think there may be some mathematical tools that could tell you that, you know, there is something going on here. The environment that we live in, in, the, in these laws of physics, they're not exactly neutral to large-scale outcomes. The, 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 the null hypothesis is that they're, they don't care. The null hypothesis, mm-hmm. the universe does not care what the macro states are, what, what happens. Uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's true, and I'm not sure that we couldn't gain evidence of that. I don't think we could prove it, and I don't think we could know exactly uh, what the large-scale uh, goals states are i'm sure there's some girdle limits there but uh but i'm not sure that we couldn't gain some evidence pointing in that direction you know it, it may it may be possible to to, to to start accumulating evidence that in fact uh yeah there is there is some sort of uh there is some sort of um attractor state that 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 you have to work hard to get away from mm-hmm.
1: okay okay one last question, if you don't mind, uh, I just, I guess I'm curious, what is it that's, that's driving you forward with all this? What, uh, what motivates you to, to do this work?
0: Um, two things. I sort of, I sort of oscillate, uh, between, between two things. Uh, one is uh, the fundamental need to understand what it means. It's, it's kind of like the, uh, the, the first person version of the hard problem of consciousness. Like, There's a physical world and some parts of this physical world are have first person experiences, I certainly do. And so that seems to me to be the grand mystery of of all and and I'm uh, incredibly interested in how how do we come to be? What are we, you know, what are we and how do we come to be? And uh, mm-hmm. what does that, what does that entail for what we should be doing with ourselves during the brief time that we're here and that kind of thing. So, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm fundamentally interested in that, that problem. That seems to be the big problem to, uh, you know, to, to, to solve. The other thing is, is that I would really like to actually make an impact on patients. You know, I, I, I hope that, uh, some of the stuff we do is going to make life better for people because uh, I see this, this incredible unmet need in terms of biomedical suffering. And I think that if we crack this one particular, this one fundamental problem, everything else, everything else that we're working on with the exception of infectious disease and antibiotics and things like that, uh, most medicines are a patch, they're, they're a patch job. They're trying, to, they're trying to keep up with symptoms. They're not addressing the fundamental issues. And I think that if we could crack this one question of, of how cell collectives make decisions about what they're going to build, that would just revolutionize everything. It would, you know, birth defects, injury, like everything. Um, we, you know, we, we can all be like plenary. I really think we can. Uh, and, uh, and that's just the, the, the thought that I might contribute at least something to, um, to, to getting to the point where uh, you know, humans and, and other, and other animals really can, you know, have a healthy lifespan and, and do, you know, d- d- sort of fulfill whatever their, their potential might be. That's it. Th- those are the, you know, those are the two things that, uh, wake me up at four in the morning. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Doing great yeah, work. Thank you. And thank you so much. Yeah. 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 And I'll definitely take you up on that. Check back in when, when you were doing that work on stress, that's awesome deeply interesting to me
0: cool cool yeah yeah yeah. well at at that point at that point i'll really and i I have another person that i talked to she studies uh uh she's a therapist too and she studies uh somatic um, consequences of trauma and so on so at that point we're gonna we're gonna have some some very uh specific and deep um conversations at that point because uh once we once we really know what's going on we'll have we'll have a lot more to talk about
1: great great cool i look forward to it
0: awesome thanks very much
1: yeah thank you take care
0: take it easy bye Thank wow. you.